the Medical College of Wisconsin has made major strides in organ transplantation. With its hospital partners, the Division of Transplant Surgery provides abdominal organ transplantation at Frederick Hospital and Children's Hospital of Wisconsin with the help of the Blood Center of Wisconsin. On this episode of CTSI Discovery Radio, we'll discuss new innovations in transplantation, a current study to help kidney recipients, and the ethics of who gets an organ when one becomes available. That's next. Good day, Southeast Wisconsin. I'm David Todd. Are you an organ donor? If you signed a piece of paper or the back of your driver's license, that may not be enough. We'll tell you why coming up. But first, CTSI, or the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin, is a consortium of researchers, scientists, doctors, and others working together in collaboration to advance biomedical discoveries and to find new drugs, therapeutics, and interventions faster and more cost-effectively than ever before. Over the past decade, new innovations have made researchers hopeful for better and improved outcomes for organ transplantation. One of those doctors, now in a multi-institution trial, is Dr. Johnny Hong, Associate Professor at MCW and the Mark B. Adams Chair in Surgery and Director of Solid Organ Transplantation at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Welcome, Dr. Hong. Um, there was an article in the Biz Times online that said that doctors are making major strides in transplant medicine. What are some of the new innovations that have been made in the advancement of the science? Yeah. Well, there are a few in different categories. One is in the management of the sick patients, which is important uh, in order to prolong, prolong their life while waiting for an organ. Uh, second is the diagnosis of rare type of rejection. Um, so that's one. The second category is our improvement in immunosuppression to minimize their risk of rejection and also treating the rare type of uh, rejection, what we refer to as antibody-mediated rejection. And the last category, I think, which is uh, quite exciting is we're developing uh, technologies in, in resuscitating these organs that would have been otherwise discarded uh, into a state where you could transplant them. Uh, that allows uh, us to increase the number of available organs for transplantation and hence saving more lives. Um, in the same article, I also read that over the last decade or so, transplants at the hospitals on the Milwaukee Regional Medical Complex have nearly tripled. Can you tell me why that is? Is that this advancing technology? Is it the, our new abilities that are drawing more patients to us? Yeah. I believe um, what I alluded earlier are the same reason why the number of transplants have increased. Uh, one is we're able, to, we're getting better in taking care of sicker patients. Uh, second uh, is that we're able to make use of more organs available, although that's not to uh, state that we have enough organ. That has always been a problem is organ uh, crisis. However, uh, in in the Milwaukee Regional Medical Complex, you know, as we have advances in both the medical, surgical, immunological aspect, we're able to take care of sicker patients. And and can you tell me? I know that you have a uh, study going on right now, an active study at the Adult TRU at Frederick. Um, what study are you working on right now? Um, 
it's to decrease rejection in new patients. Can you tell me a bit about that? So just like with any medication, you have to weigh the pros and cons, which is the adverse effects. Uh, with advent of new medication, more specific targeted immunosuppression, uh, these are the medic these are the med the medication that reduces the risk of rejection. We're titrating the best cocktail. That means you're able to get the optimal effect to prevent rejection and yet try to minimize the side effect of each particular drug. So this a study relates to a different combination of a new immunosuppression with the traditional one. Uh, and in the hopes to, and in the hopes to um, provide advantage to uh, to um, transplant recipient in achieving best reduction in 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 rejection as well as reduces the risk for adverse effects. Uh, and the study that you're working on right now is in uh, renal uh, rejection, and that's kidneys, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Um, uh, my question for you then is. Is it difficult to find participants for these clinical trials? Or are you able to work across different institutions or use different data um, in your study? Can you tell me about that? So to answer your first question, this is a multi-center trial. So um, we're working with different institutions in the country and outside the country um, in order to um, enroll enough patients to power the study. Uh, with regard to recruitment, I find it easier to recruit when the physician is primarily involved and uh, in discussing and be upfront with the patient about why we're doing that, number one. Two, what are the risks and benefits? Most importantly is to emphasize that whether they join the study or not, their standard of treatment is not gonna change. And they have the, they have the option to withdraw from the study at any time point. And I imagine people who are on a wait list for an organ are probably more prone to join, you know, new treatments and new clinical studies. Um, so it's probably a little bit easier to um, uh, to draw those folks into your studies. That, that's absolutely correct. And I think um, with with any clinical studies, our obligation is to provide an informed consent, which means that we this upfront full disclosure advantages, disadvantages, risks, benefit uh, for for the study. And you really do that in layman's language so that the patient can really understand what they're doing um, and really have uh, uh, an idea of truly if they're going to benefit or if they are a little bit afraid to do that. That's correct. And I encourage them uh, to bring their family members because a lot of them uh, will have additional questions that I think are, are best answered up front than, than after the fact. And you mentioned earlier that this research is a multi-institution study. What do you think makes for a good collaborator? What do you look for in a partner in a study like this? So, um, one, number one, the partner should have the same vision with regard to um, how do we advance the field in providing and improving care for the current patient as well as the future. So I think having, and then second, uh, the collaborator should have the patient as the number one priority for this. Uh, you know, a study is a study, however, uh, at any time point that we thought there are side effects from this medication or anything that would put the patient's safety at risk, you should be able to have an investigator like you withdraw that patient from the study. And speaking of your collaborators, um, are they all um, translational scientists as well? Are any of them part of the um, uh, Milwaukee Regional Medical Complex or here locally? Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, our international program 
is quite unique in, in, in the sense that this is the only program in, on campus that involves all the four institutions, which are the Medical College, um, Freighted Health, Medical, uh, the uh, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, and the Blood Center. And so um, when we do these studies, all of these institutions are involved in our collaborative studies. That's great to hear, and I imagine the collaboration helps advance the science even faster. That's absolutely correct, yeah. Well, that's the point of our work here. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hong. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for your time, and thanks for uh, uh, allowing me to share my uh, uh, experience. Well, we want to get more people understanding about clinical trials and more understanding that the uh, medical college and its partners really have cutting-edge science. So I thank you for your time again. Yeah, thank you again. After this break... We'll introduce you to a living liver donor advocate to find out how he helps potential donors through the process. Coming up next. is an associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin and surgeon at Freighter Hospital. But in addition, he holds a position as an independent living liver donor advocate. Dr. Marshall Beckman wants to make sure that every donor is fully informed before they consent to a life-saving living liver donation. We sat down at his office at Freighter. Dr. Beckman, for our listeners who may not know this option exists, can you tell us what actually is a living liver donor? Individuals uh, who need a liver transplant have several options, one of which is to obtain liver tissue from somebody who is uh, an acquaintance or a family member. And that is a complex uh, approach to solving that problem. However, uh, what, what, it actually, what it actually means is uh, an individual will be, will be evaluated um, and uh, from a biochemical standpoint and from an anatomical standpoint and to see if they have uh, enough liver tissue that they would be a candidate for donation, assuming that the blood typing and everything else is, is adequate or uh, reasonable. Uh, then they will uh, undergo um, a uh, donor, what we call a donor hepatectomy, which is where a portion of the liver is removed uh, and then placed into the uh, recipient. How new is this procedure? I believe the first uh, living donor liver transplant was done in 1989 from a mother to her infant child. 
And uh, how common is it now? I, I read, I think, in some article, only a handful of academic medical centers are really taking on this procedure. That's that's true. It's it's a uh, it takes a lot of uh, institutional support to undergo this type of uh, procedure. Uh, and here in Milwaukee, we have the Children's Hospital and then, of course, Freighter Hospital. Uh, so there's a lot of people involved that do this or that, that are needed to do this. And you're right, there's only a handful uh, of centers around the country that, that engage in this. Uh, and there's a lot of, of checks and balances to make sure that, that um, we meet the mark in terms of safety and, and adequacy of our you know, of patient choice. Uh, why are you a living uh, liver donor advocate? Um, what does the procedure offer the recipient? My position at the independent living donor advocate uh, is it's interesting to me and it's something I enjoy because it is something that's decidedly non-clinical, meaning I don't talk about you know, blood tests and anatomy and surgery or anything like that. My job is to be an advocate for the individual who has uh, become a candidate or, or wishes to try and be a candidate to donate a portion of their liver uh, to uh, someone in need of that. Um, my job is to meet with the potential donor and uh, talk to them and interview them to ascertain whether or not they feel pressure to do the procedure. Uh, it may be that their family or, or acquaintances or the community is saying, if you don't do this, you know, this child's going to die or this person's going to die. And they feel uh, undue pressure to do that from, from various places. Uh, and, or it may be that uh, they want to do it for other reasons. Uh, and so my job is to uh, meet with them in a confidential manner and uh, go through uh, some difficult questions, ask some difficult questions about potentially, you know, their future abilities uh, in terms of, you know, um, complications related to the procedure uh, and even uh, dying from the, from the procedure of having someone take part of their liver. So you're really there to act as expert counsel to somebody who's thinking about being a donor and making sure that they're A, physically ready and B, doing it for the right reasons. Right. The, the physical appropriateness is done by the transplant surgeons and the, you know, the patient's doctor and the liver doctors here at Freydert. Um, my role is uh, to ensure uh, to the best degree possible that the individual understands the risks of undergoing this type of procedure. That's the first thing. And then uh, so making sure that they can verbalize to me that uh, this is a risky thing. There is a chance of mortality related to the procedure, although very, very small. Uh, and also to make sure that they're not feeling coerced and, and um, approaching this uh, for reasons that may be inappropriate. Dr. Beckman, uh, you attended medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin and completed your residency here. Um, how have you seen the transplant program grow or advance over the past decade or so? When I started here in medical school in 1995, uh, we had uh, a liver transplant program and a kidney transplant program. 
and it was it was busy and it was um, a lot of fun to rotate on those uh, teams and as a medical student and as a resident uh, I think since then in the last decade or so I think we have increased our volumes uh, and um, our outcomes are very very good and I'm very proud to be you know in a very small way part of that uh, transplantation program um, we do living kidney donation uh, and transplantation as well as liver living liver donation and transplantation um, and there's a lot of very talented people around that help us uh, do that successfully so let me ask you this final question so what's the next innovation in transplantation that you think would make the biggest impact on people who are on the wait list for an organ um, or people who are in the most dire need This is, a, this is a question that I think uh, a lot of transplant surgeons and a lot of people that are, are involved in transplantation think about. It's a big question. And it, it is a big question. Um, I, I guess my thought would be there, there is somebody that would say xenotransplantation is the future of transplant and that will always be the future of transplant, and that is to say using um, non-human primate organs. Uh, in transplantation. Uh, I'm not an expert in, in this field, um, and so I, I can't comment on the status of that particular approach. I guess if we could find a way to use uh, a complex 3D printer um, apparatus to print a liver or a kidney, I suppose that would be, you know, the ultimate in uh, organ transplantation assuming that there is no medical option to treat whatever liver disease or kidney disease is there, meaning using a pill or an injection to treat those conditions. Well, I thank you for your time, Doctor. Um, I appreciate the information, and it's uh, obviously a fascinating topic to have a discussion over. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Right after this break, if you thought you were an organ donor, you might have thought wrong. Find out the best advice for someone who wants to save a life next.
Our next guest is Dr. Ryan Spellacy, Associate Professor of Bioethics and Medical Humanities at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He's also the new director of the Clinical Scholars Program offered through the CTSI. Welcome, Dr. Spellacy. Dr. Spellacy, what are the ethical issues with setting up an organ distribution system like this? Well, two of the main ethical issues that come to the forefront are fairness and transparency. So you want a, a system of allocation of organs that is fair. It means that people are not given uh, organs or organs aren't distributed in a haphazard or unfair manner or any bias in the system. Uh, and also, not only that they are distributed uh, in such a way, but also that people aren't denied uh, organs for any unethical or unfair reason, that the, the system is fair and, again, that it's transparent because this is a public system, because it is a nationwide uh, delivery system. You want a system that's transparent and people can put their faith and trust in and know that you know, if I choose to become an organ donor, I know that the system is fair and I know how it works. And can you tell me, as an associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, what do you tell your students about these decisions um, in the classroom and, and what kind of decisions they'll have to make? Right. So one of the things we talk to our students is from the standpoint of future physicians, these are conversations you may have to have with families someday. And so when you're talking with a family or a patient about organ donation, you need to be able to explain the ethical issues that arise in organ donation. So we encourage them to think about it from the perspective of a family or a patient who might be considering this and that they can explain and articulate the reasons and the rationale for organ donation. Most people agree that organ donation is important, but we also need to think about the ethics because patients might come to them and say, you know, I heard that organ donation happens this way or I, my aunt had this happen. And so they need to be able to anticipate that so that when they are presented in the first situation that they're not surprised that they've thought through this and they can they can have a conversation with, with patients and families. You know, what if a... Um what if a wrench gets thrown into the process here and uh, the organ donor who decides that they want to donate, what happens if a family member isn't comfortable with that decision of the potential donor? So this is an interesting question that many people aren't aware of, but, you know, as, as most of us know, to become an organ donor, uh, in the state of Wisconsin at least, you uh, indicate typically by, doing, uh, by filling out the application on your license and signing the back of your license, you know, you have the little dot that says you're an organ donor. And a lot of us think, okay, I'm an organ donor now. And that's true, but you know, once you have, if you do eventually donate your organs after you've died, there's still the process of getting the organs from you. And the OPO, the Organ Procurement Organization, which is the group that actually gets and distributes the organs, they will go to your family, your next of kin, whomever, and ask them and, and begin that conversation around organ donation anew. So we don't simply look at the license and say, okay, this person's an organ donor. And actually, if family members say, oh, no, you know, he never would have wanted that, or I don't know why he signed the back of his license, um, he's, he's no organ donor, often, in mo nine times out of ten, or ten times out of ten, the OPO will not proceed with organ donation. And we might think it's an interesting ethic ethical question because don't I have an autonomous right to decide whether or not to be an organ donor? Well, you do, but there's also a societal issue in which, for example, the OPO would be concerned that if they procure organs from a patient over the objections of family, even though the individual signed the card, that could have a chilling effect on organ donation as a whole. So if a story gets out in the media 
that the organ procurement organization uh, stole my loved one's organs uh, over my objections. So even though they, they've signed it and they say, oh, you know, no, he never would have wanted it, and we know that that was their decision, the, the OPO will not take those organs and won't proceed with organ donation. So to avoid this sort of societal issue of having a chilling effect and having negative news stories get out, which could in turn, you know, you might get that one uh, donation, but then maybe 10, 20, 100 people refuse to be organ donors because of this one story that becomes sensationalized or something in the media. So what we tell families and patients is, you know, it doesn't just end with signing that card. You have to have that conversation with your family, uh, just like an advanced directive. You fill out the advanced directive, then you talk to your family about what it says and what your expectations are and your desires. Same thing with organ donation. It's not enough just to sign the card and uh, get the driver's license. You have to actually have the conversation with your family so that they know where you stand, so that when the OPO comes to fulfill your wishes to be an organ donor, uh, your family is on board and it's an easier process for all involved. Great advice. Thank you, Dr. Spellacy, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And make sure to have that conversation with your family, whether it's over organ donation or a medical advance directive. I'd like to thank all my guests today, but before we go, CTSI, or the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin, is an eight-member consortium including Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Clement J. Zablocki VA Medical Center, as well as the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, and the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. All eight institutions work together to accelerate the discovery and development of new treatments and interventions that will improve our community's health. If you'd like to find out more information on CTSI or other Discovery Radio shows, just log on to ctsi.mcw.edu. There, you'll find more than a dozen programs on research and the community, ranging on topics from type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, skin cancer, heart disease, and more. Oh, help me, please, doctor, I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart. You've been listening to CTSI Discovery Radio, produced by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin, in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The show was engineered by Tom Crawford, with special thanks to Sandy Everett's and doctors Matthew Panhands and Reza Shakir. So help me, please, doctor, I'm damaged. There's a pain.